listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm your host, Mike Gaston. I'm a brand and marketing strategist, and this podcast is all about the story of private industry in America. Today, my guest is Steve Jurjevitz. He's the founder and managing partner of Tecum Capital, located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Steve, welcome to The Currency. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate the opportunity today. Look forward to chatting. Yeah, well, thanks for hosting us. We're at the Tecum offices and overlooking the beautiful hills of Pittsburgh on a, on a clear sky, sunny day. Kind of rare. There, my ride down was dark and stormy. so It's coming. Bad yeah. weather's coming, for sure. <laughs> Got to enjoy it while it's here. So. Well, the Northeasterners, we know, we know what, it, what time of year it is for sure. But Steve, thanks so much for having me today. And uh, I'm excited to talk to you. You know, I've been mainly interviewing the owners of businesses as a way to tell the story of private industry. And there's an important aspect to private business, which I think a lot of people aren't aware of, and that's the capital side of things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you talk to an owner and they'll tell you, hey, cash is a big deal. Like, I need cash flow. We need revenue. So we're all aware of cash, revenue, and and profits. But I'm excited to talk to you about the private equity side of things, because I think this is a little understood um, industry. So maybe to get started, would you mind talking a little bit about your, yourself, your journey? Like, what is Tecum? What do you guys do? And how did you get there? Sure. I, I guess, you know, from a personal journey perspective, um, you know, I'm lifelong Western Pennsylvanian. Um, grew up about an hour north of Pittsburgh in Sharon, Pennsylvania, old steel town, blue collar um, you know, grew up late 70s, early 80s when the steel industry was uh, really down and out. You know, unemployment in, in the area was, you know, 30 plus percent. It was tough. And, um, you know, it, both my grandfathers were, were immigrants uh, in the steel industry. So, you know, I had an opportunity, though my father went to night school and, uh, and got into banking. I didn't necessarily look to follow his footsteps. I went to uh, the Penn State and graduated in a, a accounting. Okay. And so started my career here in Pittsburgh with KPMG. And uh, I think I knew pretty quick I didn't want to be an accountant the rest of my life, but I thought it was a, a great base uh, and a great foundation for business in general. I think if, if you know how the numbers work and how to keep score, there's a lot of different ways you, know, you can take that career. But um, eventually, after a, a brief stint, um, actually in the FBI, I came back to Pittsburgh and uh, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Yeah, the the FBI. FBI. Yeah, I'm not allowed to talk about it too All much, right. so we'll, we'll have to leave it there. <laughs> we'll have but, to edit uh, this out, you yeah, know, or I they, might get a knock on my they, door. They do. Uh, they do take accountants and attorneys, although we were definitely at the bottom of the totem pole <laughs> when, when it comes to training. You um, were a gunslinger out in the field. I huh? had never shot a gun before I before I did that. So, uh, but I learned from the best. That's so it great. Was, uh, it was it was a great experience, and and actually very helpful in terms of what we do in our job from a, a due diligence and oh, sure. the relationship building that, that we do. Okay. Um, so anyway, a, a great experience and came back to Pittsburgh and had the opportunity to join the Sports and Exhibition Authority, which was a, a local government agency that was tasks with, uh, tasked with building uh, PNC Park in Heinz Field okay. and actually a new convention center. So um, put about a billion dollars of financing in place and, and constructed those three facilities over uh, about a three-year period. And during that time, I got my MBA from the University of Pittsburgh. So okay. um, wanted to use that MBA really to pivot my career uh, more into the investment world. Okay. And at the time, you think it was the late 90s, 
Um, you know, the technology stocks were, were booming. People could buy, you know, dot com for a, a buck and walk out with a thousand dollars. All we heard about was the new economy. Right. Forget right. everything you know. It's eyeballs, all, yeah. right? How yeah. many eyeballs? Um, but it, you know, the the whole concept though uh, interested me a lot, sure. and uh, I was able to leverage that MBA as we wrapped up the uh, construction projects. I was fortunate to um, to land a job at FNB. I mentioned that because that was our former parent company uh, for Tecum Capital, and, and I'll get into that in a second. And but FNB is a, is a banking institution. FNB is, is today is about a $30 billion uh, commercial retail bank headquartered actually here in Pittsburgh. Okay. Uh, its roots date back to actually 1864, so back to the Lincoln presidency. Wow. And uh, as a small, uh, literally small community bank. And I tie that back in because my father, uh, that was his first job. It happened to be his last job. Um, he started there as a teller. He uh, he went to Slippery Rock. He's a first generation to go to go to school. Um, wanted to be a high school principal. Uh, unfortunately, his, his father couldn't afford uh, more than a semester, so he needed a job. Wow. He got a job as a teller at the bank. Wow. And uh, the bank at the time, I think, was you know ten branches, if that. Um, and they wanted him to stay. Uh, but, you know, he wanted to go to school, so he ended up cutting a deal with the president that if he went to school at night and he would work at the bank during the day, they would actually pay for his school. Wow. So uh, I think that was a no-brainer for him. Uh, but the interesting side story is after the first trimester, he went to Youngstown State. He came back with the transcript, and it was uh, social studies, you know, uh, <laughs> art history, <Yeah. laughs> all, all the prerequisites to be a, a principal. And uh <laughs> the president of the bank at the time said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to pay this bill, but you're going to go back and see the dean and you're going to major in economics and become a banker. Yeah, we're not paying and, for um, a liberal arts degree. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So 54 years later, uh, he retired this past year as chairman of F&B. Oh, my goodness. And so he spent his whole... Son I, of I, immigrants. I, I joke, he's, he's maybe the only person that has had one job. Um, one wife and one house in his whole life. So <laughs> what a story though. I mean, you think about, you know, I know there's some pain in society these days. People talk about upward mobility and inequity and stuff, but your father is the son of immigrants that came over to work in the steel industry. Did you say? Right. Yeah. Right. And then uh, didn't have enough money to put him through college and he, he finished the chairman. How yeah, big was the, how big was the organization well, at the time? Yeah, as I said, it, it was, it might be only like five branches. I said 10, uh, when he started, but you know, today you said 30 um, billion. Yeah. They're 30 billion in assets. Wow. So I think the first, you know, 20 years of his career, they went from, you know, 50 million to, you know, that first billion. That's fantastic. Uh, but they've grown, you know, substantially since, uh, as the banking laws, you know, relaxed and banks, you know, could make, First, it was acquisitions over county lines and then state lines, and they began to grow organically hmm. and actually got involved with a, a bank in Florida that uh, grew quite a bit. And then uh, in 2004, ended up spinning it off. And I, I mentioned that because I was recruited by FMB not because of my father, but because the CEO at the time was really ramping up their wealth management division, which was actually being run out of this Florida bank in Naples, Florida. Okay. So, A, I was pretty excited about the prospect of being in Naples, Florida. And two, uh, there was obviously a lot of wealth down there. Yeah. And they had a, a great uh, chief investment officer, a good team I could learn from. Mm. So that was going to be my pivot post-MBA into investing. And uh, long story short, just as I joined the bank and then during the recruiting process, we, we had to ask my father if that was okay. 
he didn't know anything about wealth management per se. He was a banker. So uh, he blessed it. And uh, as soon as I joined the bank and trained with the, the CIO, uh, they ended up deciding to spin off the Florida franchise. Oh. And uh, I ended up staying in, in Pennsylvania and training under the CIO who was in Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, at that time, the tech bubble had burst. And uh, the the excitement I had for investing waned somewhat because uh, we were mostly buying public uh, stocks and bonds. And I just didn't really feel comfortable sitting down with a client saying, hey, you know, we were only down, you know, 20 percent. The market was down 22. We did a great job. Yeah, like we pat ourselves in the <laughs> yeah, back. Yeah. Like, but we lost 20 percent of the money. not feeling so good about that. <laughs> exactly. And and you think about the competition in, in wealth management and asset management and attracting business owners were, were a key client because a lot of them. High net worth folks. Have their wealth tied up in, in business. And I started to think, geez, those people are going to need uh, an avenue to to get that illiquid asset liquefied and create you know the the retirement and estate plan for their future and their mm-hmm. family. If we could create a dedicated source of capital to be there for ownership transitions of businesses, and, and particularly at the time we were you know Pennsylvania Ohio focused, there was a lot of family owned businesses. A lot, yeah, manufacturing, sure, exactly, and they're facing succession issues whether they know it or not. Right, and having a dedicated source of capital to help facilitate those in a friendly manner, mm-hmm. um, but also make a return on our capital was was what appealed to me, and so I began to, to lobby for that concept inside the organization and uh, partnered with one of the board members, a gentleman named John Rose, who was my personal mentor. And and John was, was big in the idea of uh, providing capital. He had done some uh, you know, private investing in, in businesses, both venture and existing businesses for a long time, and uh, took me under his wing. And together we crafted a plan to form a merchant bank is what the term was under okay. FNB okay. that would be dedicated to helping privately held businesses in their succession planning and transition of ownership. Sure. This Whether is... it be management, buying it out or next generation or just an outright sale. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say this, so that this is an interesting evolution and I'll just clarify. I'm sure a lot of listeners know this, but just in case. So when you're initially getting involved with that potential, you know, the, the bank acquired the, the place in Naples, mm-hmm. that was more in, um, I'm coming in, I've got some, I've, let's say about $100,000, mm-hmm. and you're going to help me invest that in stocks, right. bonds, different assets. You're, you're a wealth manager right. on behalf of exactly. individuals. Exactly. You were looking at that and saying, okay, I don't feel really good not being able to return on this. You said, and, and you're looking at owners and when you're talking about illiquid asset, you're talking about their business. Their business is an asset. It is. But all that wealth is tied up in the business, the day-to-day operation, the exactly. equipment, the intellectual property. And, and it's usually illiquid, right? Yeah. You don't just go out and sell parts of you your business. You can't write checks against it. You, right. you, when you need groceries, you need cash. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. exactly. So your vision was to say, hey, there are a lot of these firms that – and folks, if, if you don't own a private business, if you do, you, you realize this – but. You know, you, at some point you have to have a, an event. You're going to sell it. You're going to pass it on. You a liquidity event. You got to make money off of that. So you're going to sell it somehow. Right. Exactly. And so you thought you might be in a position to help facilitate. Right. Help facilitate that with with mutual benefits. Right. You know, number one, the, the bank could make a return on its capital. Although I originally thought we could raise a fund inside the wealth management group. Mm-hmm. The board of directors uh, felt, geez, without a track record as a fiduciary, risky. That, that's, that's not exactly <laughs> what we're signing up for. But they did agree to say, hey, we'll use the bank's balance sheet 
and fund you on a deal by deal basis as oh. you bring these opportunities. And by the way, let's work with the commercial lending team to identify and be a, a you know, resource for them as they're talking to their okay. clients and business owners or prospects. Was that typical? Like if you look at banks that were similar to FSB, was that? No, FNB. FNB, I, it, thank it, it was, you. It was not typical. In fact, the so the merchant banking rules fell under the purview of the Federal Reserve. Mm. And as we were launching, this was late 05, 06, and it was literally a business plan in the basement of my condo um, with, with John Rose's support as a director. And the Federal Reserve took us under their umbrella and had me come out to Chicago to their private equity group and speak. They really wanted more banks, uh, particularly, you know, smaller banks, maybe not necessarily community banks, but those emerging regional banks yeah. to look at this program to be that dedicated source of capital. So they, they got behind us in a big way. But ironically, um, they never gave us full merchant banking powers. So we ended up, uh, while we were sort of waiting for a regulatory review in, in early 06, is discovering uh, the mezzanine debt or subordinated debt market. Can you and, explain what that is? Yeah, for, for your listeners. And, and, you know, it works a lot like a commercial loan, but it's usually subordinated to, you know, your bank if you have a term loan. So you're taking with a them. second position. Second third lien position. Yeah, in some yeah. cases or maybe no lien at all. So it carries a higher coupon. But it also doesn't amortize. Okay. So there's usually a five or six year maturity that's a bullet maturity. What does that mean, a bullet maturity? Uh, that means if you borrowed $5 million, you, you don't pay it as you go. At the end of five years, you pay the whole $5 you write million. write a check. In. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, like back in the old days, I remember my uh, dad bought a car. It was back like the late 60s, early 70s. And they had balloon payments. You may have tiny little payments, right. but then Balloon's you get this big balloon. Term. Yeah, exactly. Okay, gotcha. But you pay interest along the way. Exactly. And, you know, mezzanine interest rates will run, you know, somewhere around 12%. Okay. Uh, so it is a higher kind of coupon. But from a cash flow perspective, because the business owners don't have to amortize the principal as they go, you can actually retain a little more cash in the mm -hmm. business for growth objectives. Sure, sure. And so how is that instrument used typically? It's used because, you know, let's face it, and particularly post-financial crisis, banks are only going to lend so much, yeah. you know, be it, you know, whether it's a cash flow loan where they're lending off the cash flow of the business or the assets of the business, mm -hmm. they're only going to lend you so much money. Yeah. And, and they're generally pretty conservative. And that's not all bad. Where where mezzanine comes in is kind of where the bank leads off, right? And it And it gets its name mezzanine. Because it's really the bridge capital between a traditional commercial loan mm -hmm. and the equity in a company. Okay. And so what we were trying to do is, hey, we want to do equity and MES. Uh, the Federal Reserve was was a little resistant. So we discovered uh, a pretty active mezzanine market at the time. And uh, under that bank umbrella, we ended up investing about $60 million in 17 companies from 2006 to the end of 2012. Wow. But our, our story took a turn with the financial crisis. Um, you know, coming out of that and the Dodd-Frank legislation in particular, that, that part of that was they wanted banks out of private equity. Mm. They didn't want them investing directly, and they didn't want them to invest in private equity funds. What was the, what was the thinking behind that? Just because we all got our fingers burned, or was there a specific? Yeah, I, th I think it's one of those things where the pendulum swings pretty far, yeah. and the regulators and the legislation and Congress comes in and say, just, yeah, we're shutting down all yeah. any type of risky activities within banks, okay. right? It's a fallout of the, of the crisis. Yeah. 
And um, there was one exemption, though, under the Dodd-Frank legislation, and that was um, the SBA has a program called the SBIC program, or Small mm-hmm. Business Investment Company. It's a, it's a license that the SBA will grant through a vetting process that they do. And with that license, banks are allowed to, uh, to invest into a pooled fund that that license, myself, my two partners, uh, obtained. Uh, that is the permission that banks can invest into our fund. Okay. And so with FNB's blessing, and they were very supportive, we applied for that license uh, as our future because otherwise we were pretty much out of business. Yeah. And uh, we applied in August of 17, and we were, quote, fast-tracked and licensed in August of 13. Wow. Uh, it took a little longer than, than we'd like. <laughs> but part of that was our capital raise. Uh, the bank was uh, our former bank, FNB, was our lead investor. And we ended up with six other banks and about $67 million of private capital. Let me just back up. You said, you, when did you apply for that license? August of 11. 11. All right. I, 2011. I, and then took th- to 13. To yeah. Two years. So we got our license Goodness. in August of 13. Okay. So we, gotcha. There were some anxious moments, uh, to be sure. And so, you know, I think, uh, you know, and I'm bouncing a little bit, but, you oh, know, we good. get into our team, um, you know, we typically don't go out and, and recruit from the big Ivy League schools. That's kind of traditional within private equity. And we do fall into the private equity category. Mm-hmm. But um, we, we get younger folks that have hopefully can sit down with a business owner, an entrepreneur, and kind of walked in their shoes. And I feel like our experience of growing up as a startup inside a highly regulated publicly traded company and then spinning off into a program run by the SBA where we had to start from scratch and build to where we are today, you know, we, we kind of know what it's like to meet payroll yeah. and, and the challenges that come with a business owner. And I think that's one of our you know, approaches when we go to market is sure. how, how can we help the business owner, not just be a source of capital? So you're, are you still related to FNB or are you guys a separate entity now? We're completely separate. As of August 13, they were okay. a large LP in our first fund. Okay. And what's, uh, what's nice about the SBIC program is when in our first fund, we raised that 67 million of capital. Mm-hmm. We can then borrow through an SBA debenture program up to two times that capital it's a non-taxpayer-funded program, mm-hmm. so nice. the, the, all the the debt from all the different SBIC funds gets pulled, securitized, and sets pricing and passes through to our investors. So that sixty-seven million turned into about one hundred eighty-six million. Wow! And from really August of thirteen through March of seventeen, we invested one hundred eighty-five million in twenty-six privately held companies all over the country. That's fantastic. Various I want to get to some of those. And, yeah. Sure. You know, do, do me a favor. I, you know, I read the website. You've got almost a billion dollars in assets. I, the website says you've got over $750 million. Right. Is that accurate? That's correct. So fund one, we went went pretty quick in terms of investing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we rolled that right into our second SBIC, where we had $90 million of private capital including some uh, well-known um, investors such as Bank of New York, Mellon, Morgan Stanley, okay. and some big institutional yeah. folks. But we also had several high net worth individuals, one of whom uh, had invested in Fund 1 and Fund 2 and was in the coal space hmm. and had two kids that were college age um, and was really looking to diversify his family's net worth and buy some businesses. He, he mentioned to me, you guys see a lot of businesses, and we had the shared 
um, I don't know if dislikes the right word, but frustration with the public markets. Okay. He had obviously accumulated a lot of assets and, it, you know, you think you know what you're doing, buying stocks, and then the market goes up and you're feeling pretty smart. Yeah. <laughs> and it goes down and you have no idea why. And yeah. um, so he, he liked the idea of maybe buying some small privately held businesses. And long story short, um, April 17, we launched our second SBIC fund, Tecum Capital Partners 2, which is with leverage 265 million of mm-hmm. assets. Mm-hmm. And then our high net worth investor formed a family office called Western Allegheny Capital, and we formed Tecum Equity. And so we now buy businesses for him uh, through that entity. Mm. And that entity is now deployed, you know, well over $200 million in six companies. Fantastic. So this has all happened in six years. And we've gone from myself and my, my two partners, Matt Harnett and Tyson Smith, to 14 people. We've moved our office, I think, three times here in the, the North Hills of Pittsburgh, but yeah. we're we're settling in now. I think we we've uh, we've had quite a bit of growth, and now we're really excited about what we can do to help business owners throughout the country. And we're going to talk about that, but I got to ask the question. I mean, I'm listening to the changes. You know, there's the whole. I mean, it sounds like your whole career has been kind of change and evolution. That's exciting. We could talk about that, but. I'm thinking about the last handful of years where you've had this exponential growth. Mm-hmm. I have a lot more gray hair now. It's <laughs> well, but I, I will say you have it. I would, I'll take mine any color at this stage. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> but um, but but seriously, what I'm thinking is two things, right? So if I'm in your shoes, I'm thinking I've got to be really good at at due diligence and finding good opportunities. And there's a lot of you could be. All your time just trying to find good deals, make mm-hmm. sure that you're investing wisely so that you get good return. But on the other hand, you've got to scale up an organization. And I know right. this isn't a 500-person mm-hmm. factory, but still, you've got to find highly qualified, intelligent, good cultural fit. Mm-hmm. How did you handle balancing both things over the last handful of years? Uh, honestly, it's been my biggest challenge, and it's not been easy. Um, I, I probably had a bit of naivety when I got in it because you, you know, we were just trying to go out and find good investments and do good by our investors. Sure. And then along the way, oh, by the way, we're building a business. And then you wake up one day and you realize, <laughs> wow, we're building a business. Like, yeah. So unfortunately for me personally, I probably spend more time now working on our business than I get to uh, in terms of finding that next great deal. But you hire good people around you and you trust them and and you teach them how to do it. In fact, that you know, I mentioned after this uh this podcast today, we're having a lunch and learn with our team, just trying to continue to educate and share knowledge with, mm. with the talent that we have. But mm-hmm. um, once you kind of build the culture and then we tend to build from the ground up. So we recruit a lot of younger analysts mm-hmm. who maybe don't have that much real practical experience, but they're sharp. Uh, we bring them in. We teach them our way of doing business and how to do deals. And then, you know, we build that culture from the ground up. So that's why I think we relate very well to business owners because we have to take risk. We have to yeah. hire people, meet payroll, uh, find deals, take care of our investors, build a back office, do our reporting to our investors. As you can imagine, in a government program like like the SBIC program, we have a lot of reporting and, and things that we need to get to them to be in compliance. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's been quite a task, but it's been a lot of fun, a great challenge. My guest today is Steve Jurjevitz. He's the founder and managing partner of Tecum Capital. Guys, we're going to take a quick break, um, but before we do, I want to encourage you to check out Steve's organization. You can uh, find them on, online. Just go to their website, uh, Tecum. It's spelled T-E-C-U-M dot com. 
tcom.com and I'll provide a link in the show notes as well. They're also pretty active on LinkedIn, so if you want to uh, interact a little bit with the organization, you can just check out TCOM online on LinkedIn and uh, follow the organization there, and, and they're pretty good at posting what they're up to, the different deals, and and posting updates on the uh, on the companies that they're invested in. And guys, we'll be right back with more uh, with our friend Steve Jurchovitz. Guys, I hope you're enjoying today's show. I've got to tell you, I really love putting this podcast together. There's something really special about meeting these business owners, hearing their stories, and then getting those stories out to you, the community that makes up the currency. Thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you for helping me make this podcast so successful. Now, look, if you are a business owner and you're trying to scale your business, you're trying to grow, maybe introduce new products, maybe capture new markets, or just capture more share in your existing market, I'd love for you to get in touch. I'd love to help you. You know, I'm a brand and marketing strategist. I help the owners of private businesses transform their marketing from an overhead function, something that costs them money, to a revenue generating machine, something that brings money into the business. Every dollar you spend should generate exponential return. And so I love working with folks that own businesses to help them do that transformation. If that's something you think you could use some help with, let's at least have a discussion. Get in touch, like I said. My email address is mike at mikegaston.com. You can also go to my website, mikegaston.com. There's a contact form there. But get in touch and let's get a discussion started. Now, guys, let's get back to today's show. And we're back with Steve Jurjevitz. He's the managing partner of Tecum Capital. Steve, welcome back to The Currency. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, thanks for taking us through this very interesting. And, uh, you know, it's easy to take things for granted. I, I'm grateful that you're willing to spend a little bit of time telling the story and explaining how and why and what you do. Let's talk for a minute about the kinds of companies that you invest in. You made a comment about, you know, initially – uh, you saw like Pittsburgh, uh, sorry, not Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, mm -hmm. a lot of family owned businesses. I know that you're invested all over the country. You go coast to coast, uh, mm -hmm. north, north to south. What are the characteristics that are common for the businesses you're invested in? Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, off the bat, we're industry agnostic. And so really the best part of my job or, or why I got into this business and like it so much is really, you know, meeting the business owners and the different folks that are out there and hearing their story and how they came to be successful. Mm. But then also learning about these different industries. Um, you know, it's amazing. If if you go around the corner here in our office, we have a um, a bubble hockey machine. Okay, it's a, the old arcade yeah. game. And, and I remember playing that growing up. You know, it was USA versus Russia. Yeah, USSR, that's right. right. Yeah, it was a big deal and, in 1980. Um, yeah, that was, that was a company called ICE, um, Innovative Concepts and Entertainment in Buffalo, New York. Yeah. Founder, My neck of the woods. Ralph Coppola was was the founder, invented the game okay. with his partner. And they now make a number of these, you know, games um, that are, you know, in the Dave and Busters, a Chuck E. Cheese throughout throughout the world, really. And um, you know, just hearing that story, mm -hmm. how they invented a game and, and went on to be successful in, in their distribution and building their business. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those are those are great stories. So I you know, I, we never come out and say, Oh, we only do XYZ industry. Uh, we're open to really any industry, and our criteria is now primarily driven by size. Okay. Um, you know, unfortunately, we can't help every single business at every size, but 
private equity, like the public markets, tends to get bifurcated into, you know, large cap, mid cap, small cap. We're, we're probably, you know, small to micro cap. Okay. Our businesses generally are probably, you know, 10 to 50 million in revenue. Uh, generally speaking, we require, you know, two to three million of annual cash flows, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to get to get interested. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it, it really comes down to, you know, what the margins look like, what the customer profile is. And of course, you know, growing up and in, in, in our business, you know, being based here in Western Pennsylvania, you know, we probably skew a little bit towards manufacturing and distribution because of this region, because of the region and yeah. where our roots and, and the bank itself. I, I think our, our former bank parents core competency is is commercial lending. OK. And, you know, back when my father was was doing lending, it was it was before Excel spreadsheets. It was sitting <laughs> down with somebody and touring their plant for eight hours and shaking hands and saying, you got a deal. Yeah. You know, putting really back then putting people in the business. And uh, and frankly, probably not getting paid for the risk you were taking, but that was banking back in the day. Yeah. And so a lot of banks can't do that now. And that's where we sort of come in through the SBIC program or through our equity investor being that alternative source of capital through that, you know, broad term called private equity, mm. which I know sometimes has a negative connotation, yeah. particularly as we get deeper in this election cycle. And, and I think that's a bit of a misnomer. Um, you know, they're clearly uh, private equity groups that do some things that, you know, maybe, you know, make you think twice. Mm-hmm. But, you know, our name, Tecum Capital, and by the way, that was the hardest thing, Funny leaving name. the bank is coming up with a name, right? <laughs> and uh, it actually came from, I was reading an article on a, a famous Native American, uh, Tecumseh, and um, oh yeah, I don't know what made me cover the S-E-H at the end of, his, of the spelling, but... I saw a five letter word that looked Latin and, you know, I took Latin in high school, but, you know, I couldn't speak it and, okay. and uh, ended up uh, looking up and it literally means with you in Latin. Oh, wow. Okay. And I thought it was uh, the ch- famous chief. Yeah, yeah. Who is actually, you know, Midwest, yeah. uh, U.S. based. I used and, to live and, in uh, southern Ohio. I, I was out there for work in Chillicothe for yeah, less okay. than a year managing a program in Tecumseh. Okay. It was huge out there. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a famous yeah. name. And yeah. in fact, one of our investors said, why didn't you just use his name? Well, I said, we want to kind of invent our own. But yeah. we, we liked his story. Um, and, you know, with roots here in the Midwest like ourselves. But I think the, that Tika meaning with you is really how we like to invest as private mm-hmm. equity. Mm-hmm. It's about creating win-win relationships with a business owner or a buyer of a business, be it a management team or another financial buyer. Sure. And, you know, our, our objectives aren't to come in and sort of grip it, rip it and flip it. Uh, <laughs> it, it it's how do we invest? How do we nurture this? How do we take care of the employees? How do we make it more efficient? And make it successful for either that next generation, the next ownership, because what we find when when privately held businesses or family owned businesses in particular for sale is they certainly want to monetize, you know, what they've built and grown. But there's also, uh, you know, in in most of them, uh, an affection for their people. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of long time. You Mm -hmm. hear those stories, walking plant floors, you know, here's. Here's Jim. He's been here 32 years. And yeah, I mean, I, I you know, yeah. just on this podcast, I'll have, uh, so yeah, a few weeks back in uh, Rochester, New York area, there's a company called Star Headlight, uh, founded in the 1800s, um, a fifth generation owner right now. Well, he's telling me we've got employees that have been here for three generations, different yeah. family Families. members, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I was uh, talking to someone yesterday in the Pittsburgh area, same thing, two, three generations of uh, families that work in our facility. So, 
there's a closeness and a sense, a sense of obligation, a healthy sense. It's like, hey, this, this family's been good to my family. We want to be good to them in return. There is. So there is. You, I can see this dynamic where you've got like a parent who's the owner. Now it's me and I'm, I'm getting older and I'm ready to, I'm done. And I want my son and daughter to buy the business from me. I want to get out. How do I realize that wealth? And at the same time, ensure the culture, the longevity, and, and the well-being of the people that I've that have helped me make this wealth, and I've helped them thrive exactly. as well. Yeah, you got to find the right partner to help us. And, and we think we are not not in every case, but in a lot of cases. And part of the reason we did our I'll call it our, our secondary fund or TCM equity, which is pure equity. We don't do any financing in that vehicle, and the two funds do not work together okay. to avoid any perceived conflicts, particularly with the SBA. But that's not even a fund by by legal structure. It's an LLC, and it's really a buy and hold vehicle. Okay. So our investor is is looking to buy these businesses and to grow them over a long period of time. Interesting. Um, well, we certainly want to make money, but it, at the same time, there's other benefits to it. And and we've done two deals locally here with him. Uh, one was uh, Pittsburgh Brewing or Iron City Beer. Yeah, I saw you guys post own. on that on LinkedIn. That was a really interesting story. It's interesting. We're in the process of Great buying brand, the, the building and trying oh. to rebuild that brand. What a story. Uh, that, in the region. Yeah. And, it, and when you look at it on paper, maybe it's not the best investment at the time we did it from a pure financial perspective. Yeah. But, you know, we're investing in the people and the product and the brand. And I think on the other side, there'll be some real benefits to everybody with that deal. And the community. I think this gets at the deeper piece, you know, where I said I, I, I'm looking forward to talking to you. There are some misconceptions around private equity. And I say misconceptions. Maybe some of them are well-earned. Maybe there are some firms out there that have earned that reputation. But what Certainly. ends up happening is that everybody gets painted with that, that brush. And uh, what you're doing here is really interesting. That, yeah, that Iron City was fantastic. And I thought the value for your community. So let's say you guys don't get rich off of that deal. But let's say mm-hmm. it's a good deal for you, but you're not going to you know, buy a private jet because of that deal. Right. Um, the value that you create for your communities, like all boats rise. You know, when your community, when Pittsburgh's doing better, when you've got cultural artifacts, places to go. It's a very historical brand and and you get behind it. And that was very appealing to our investor. Um, And I think another story here locally, we, uh, about a year ago, closed uh, on a company called Oberg Industries. Oberg. Oberg. Second generation family owned. Uh, Eric Oberg, who, who now resides in California, was was not overly active in the business. Okay, but you know he and then his father before him had built a great company. It's a precision contract manufacturer, dealing primarily in metals. Okay, uh, their end markets are in medical, industrial, a little bit in energy. Um, you know, been around for decades, and uh, that second generation, there there was no third generation to take over. Mm-hmm. But a genuine, honestly, genuine love for the people and the management team. And we came in and bought that business. It was, it was a bigger deal. I mean, it was it was north of $100 million, And that's not our typical place that we play. Yeah. <clears throat> but the first thing we did, and, and really our investor, is we spent you know over a million dollars increasing the benefits and the profit sharing plan for the employee base. And, and, you know, overall, I think it's 450 plus employees in, in Pennsylvania and three facilities here just outside of Pittsburgh. That wasn't required. It wasn't necessary. 
But you see, and, and frankly, it's probably not the traditional private equity playbook. <laughs> Day one, let's go spend more money. Um, but, you know, the motivational aspect and, you know, that company itself and that labor force having multiple generations as well working mm-hmm. there, you, you saw the pickup, the enthusiasm behind that. Mm-hmm. Let's go get even better, right? Mm-hmm. And and that that's private equity. I mean, the idea isn't to just strip these businesses, generally speaking. It, it is about... How do we make it better? How do we make it more efficient? And that's a, that's a fiduciary obligation as a shareholder and owner to not only make money, but take care of the employees and make the business more competitive yeah. so it can survive that third, fourth generation, the decades from now. Because, you know, in, in, it's like sports. If, if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. And yeah. I think in business that that really applies. I agree, Stephen. I think you bring up a great point. I, I you know, there's this, there's a movement, and it's not necessarily bad, but this uh, idea of conscious capitalism. And, um, but I think the assumption underlying that, and, and maybe I'm wrong, is that to make capitalism good, it has to be focused on some type of more humane. You know, we're we're feeding the poor, we're healing the sick, and those are good things. I, uh, I've been hungry and sick. I like I like those <laughs> things being taken care of. But but I, where I'm going with this is to say this say that. Sometimes just making a company better, making it more profitable, is uh, is just good on its own. It doesn't need justification. It doesn't need right. to have a Mother Teresa aspect to it. Because I think that employees, they can make more money. They can take the care of their family. They can take more pride in their work. The company's more competitive in the marketplace. I, I think the question that people maybe miss is, how do you do that? You can do that in a more humane way. So you guys went mm-hmm. and said, hey... We're going to respect the, the the value that each one of you bring to the table. We're giving you more benefits. We want to give you more security so you know that you know, you're know you being taken care of well. But in doing that, we want to make this company better. And some folks will go and say, well, we're going to make it more profitable by stripping it. But that's not sustainable. Right. Right. And, and you know, that's a short run game. Yeah. that's You're just you, cashing in. Yeah. You don't want to run lean. And we've, we've gotten involved or invested in businesses that were – frankly, too lean when we got in. Okay. And the challenge with that is your margin for error decreases. I mean, when okay. you're running that lean and maybe the economy pulls back or, you know, a customer pulls back, you know, then, it, then it's tougher to survive. Yeah. So um, you got to invest for the long term. And I think that was one of the things that, that turned me off to the public markets because a lot of publicly traded companies quarter. Yeah. live quarter. And if you ask my father when he was CEO of FMB, the the least thing he enjoyed was those quarterly conference oh, calls. Ter- they got to be terrible. I remember I was you know, when I was young as a sales guy, and uh, I kind of look back on this fondly. But you know, you you're only as good as your last deal. So you may have you may have done some heroic thing, right? You're, you're and you feel like, well, I should at least get a day or two and just take a deep breath. But the sales manager wants to know what you do for me today. Exactly. And I feel like the public market is like that too. But not even um, what great thing, to, but like how much money do we make in these three months? There's no room for a long-term planning. Yeah. Goals. Yeah. Just say, Hey, so, you know, maybe you spend a little more out front and, you know, you're seeing it with iron city, you you get behind the brand you spend in marketing and the benefits not this year, it's, it's going to be two, three plus years from now. Right. And so it's an interesting approach. And, you know, honestly, not all private equity does it that way, but you'd be surprised. I, I think there's a misnomer that, you know, for the few sort of bad eggs that may be out there, that's the exception, not mm-hmm. the norm. And it, it is frustrating when, you know, you work in an industry and it, and it takes political hits and there's assumptions out there that, you, you know, it's all about just getting rich or making mm-hmm. money. 
And, uh, you know, the, the biggest uh, thing that I enjoy other than learning about these businesses and meeting the people is the jobs we create. Yeah. You know, we in our first SBIC fund, uh, which is now sort of winding down in its 10 year life, we've uh, we've created over twelve hundred jobs through organic and growth and or acquisitions. And that's not a, that's not those other two funds. That's just the SBIC. That's just the fund. first fund. Yeah, we're on number two now. And, okay. and of course, what we're doing on the equity jobs. side. Twelve, twelve hundred. And how jobs. many employees are sitting here in this office? We're up to fourteen. So, and, four- and we've created those jobs as well, right? Right. Yeah. So, I'm just thinking, you've got a team of fourteen now. You're partnering with all these businesses and their and their new owners, or you know, whoever's involved. Mm-hmm. So, I know you're not just sitting here in Pittsburgh single handedly, but these companies couldn't create those jobs without you. You're sitting here with a team of fourteen people, and that's generated. Right. And we, we serve a role. So we go out and raise capital from institutions, in a lot of cases, banks on our SBIC program and some pension funds and family offices. And we pull that money mm-hmm. and then leverage through the SBIC program additional capital mm-hmm. and create that pool of fund two, 265 million and go deploy that in 10 plus million dollar chunks across the country yeah. and create jobs in various industries and help owners, you know, recognize some level of liquidity in their business. It's amazing. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting to me is I think in fund two now we have eight former uh, owners slash uh, CEOs of former portfolio companies who invested with us, not only because they want to make money, but because they like us and how we do business mm. and they're behind it and they mm. want to help. You know, if there's another business in their industry, you know, they wouldn't mind, hey, can I serve on the board and maybe invest personally and I'll help you guys out. So we're starting to build that Rolodex of operators and, and investors that, that have the experience. One thing we're not at Tecum is we, we're not operators. You know, we're not going to come in and say, hey, we're going to run your business better than you. Gotcha. But we have folks in our investor base, including on the equity side, who are operating businesses or mm-hmm. have operated businesses, and they can bring their expertise, you know, maybe at a board level yeah. uh, to help, again, make these businesses better in that next iteration of ownership. There's that, and I think too, just the the uh, networks of people, and so so uh, you know you've got this this board, let's say, or uh, these investors that are involved. These people are well connected. So if I become a new Tecum uh, investment, you've just invested in my business. I'm running the business. I have access to all their knowledge, but then they can say, hey, you know what, Mike? I don't know the answer to that, but I've got a guy that did this exact same thing on the West Coast. Let me get you on a call with him. I mean, exactly. that, that kind of wisdom, you can't buy that. You can't, Mike. We've taken that one step further. We, we had talked about for a few years when we spun out uh, into Tecum Capital about how do we get all these um, CEOs or, or leaders of these various investments together to kind of share ideas and, and maybe mm. solve problems yeah. together. Yeah. And so uh, this past uh, last month, we had our second, uh, we call it our CEO Summit, and we had about 30 executives or, or at least 30 people read it, representing about 28 companies, I think it was, okay. um, who got together. We spent a day. We did a, a strategic uh, you know, planning facilitation. Uh, one of our portfolio companies in Fund 2 is a cybersecurity company. Oh, cool. So we had them present on you know, some, of the, some yeah. of the key issues we all stress over. And, and, and they ended up getting about three or four leads out of it, which wasn't the intent. But the idea is to share ideas in common problems. And I think over the past two years that we've done that, you know, one of the themes is a big challenge is just labor shortage, finding good people, yeah, this retaining economy. good people. It's mm-hmm. It's been ongoing, right? 
And so, uh, you know, different practices that some of our port portfolio companies are utilizing. Uh, one is a, an attic stairway uh, manufacturer down Marwin. in the southeast, Marwin. Yeah. And they actually have contracted with a local prison to to have labor come. They come on a bus every morning. They're on time. They show up. They work hard. They get back on the bus and go back. But, you know, the, the company certainly benefits from the labor. But I think, you know, those those um, individuals coming from prison are, are, you know, a step away from assimilating back into society. Right. Yeah. This is a great first step. Like getting jobs to, to get skills, to get yeah. reacclimated and, you know, hopefully turn their life around. So yeah. um, that's one example. Another one I think I shared with you was um, a company out in California uh, FSC Lighting. Yeah, that's a great story. Which does a lot of retrofitting in, in both manufacturing facilities, uh, warehouses, parking garages with LED lighting and mm -hmm. more more efficient energy use through automated controls and things of that nature. But they actually have uh, a program with uh, uh, some uh, uh, mentally challenged disabled individuals who come in and make up a nice chunk of their workforce. Their okay. goal is to get that to 25%. Uh, they're getting close to that. They have a great video. It's out on, on YouTube that um, I think I shared with you. Yeah, the I'll, link that, I'll put a link in the show notes if folks want to check it out. It's it, a nice story. It's a really cool story. And yeah. so you think about, hey, private equity, like, yes, we didn't tell them to go contract or find these people or plans. But when you work and you invest with good people and you find solutions and create jobs and create great companies doing good things, it, it makes you proud to be a part of it. Absolutely. And I'm, I, I appreciate that. And I hear you saying, you know, when you're looking for folks to do business with, you're listening for those stories. You're not, I didn't in, infer that you're listening for, I'm, I want to find a company that's um, hiring, right. you know, the handicap to, to do assembly work, but you're listening for that deeper story. What, what are these people all about? What are their values? What's their vision for their business? And is this something that we can partner with them to help make a reality? Right. Yeah, exactly. That's great. Steve, what, um, what are some of the misconceptions that folks coming to the table looking for finance have? Is there are there some common things people knock on the door and go, "Hey, I'm looking. I need equity, private equity, that uh, maybe we could uh, clear up." Yeah, uh, certainly. I mean, I, I I don't envy any business owner, particularly that maybe isn't classically trained in finance. Uh, which is most business owners. Which is a lot of, at least a lot of successful ones, right? I because think we're usually the C students that uh, end up owning businesses. Entrepreneurs are great at inventing and building. Uh, a lot of them are builders yeah. and hiring people yeah. and dealing with customers and understanding yeah. their product and process. But, you know, finance and it accounting tough. usually comes in the back burner. Um, that's why I got an accounting degree. There but you go. It's, um, it's a challenge. And, and I think the biggest, you know, the two big misconceptions are, you know, what's the business worth? You know, mm. sometimes maybe whether it's, you know, out, out golfing with, you know, some peers or, you know, out to dinner with, with folks, you, you, you end up getting a number in your mind, oh, my business is worth X. Yeah. And, and that may be a great, you know, aspiration, but there are metrics and ways to value. And I think yeah. sometimes... You know, there, there's a reality check that comes into play. It can be overinflated. I've done a couple um, small acquisitions. I've had t discussions around these back when I owned I owned an agency for a number of years. And uh, often someone would come to the table with an inflated perspective yeah, on what their thing was worth. And it's, exactly. it's personal. It's hard to detach. It's hard. It's their baby, right? Yeah. But one of the ways around is, look, if maybe if a deal gets done, you know, you roll over or you keep a piece of the business. Mm -hmm. And so... 
you get a second bite of the apple, you know, or, or a third down the road. Okay. Uh, that's, that's one way sort of around that sure. uh, reality check. I think, too, is just a general probably lack of knowledge uh, about what the options really are, right? Sometimes you don't have to sell the business. Maybe maybe you just bring in a, an equity partner or, or a capital provider to help, uh, you know, make a distribution, take a few chips off the table, but still be involved and or even maintain control. I mean, there are various options to think through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that um, the other probably third thing is when you get into valuation, sometimes it's not just uh, picking the group that's going to write you the biggest check. I mean, clearly, you know, you, you want to monetize the value you've created if, if mm-hmm. you've truly gotten to the point where you want to sell a business. But it's equally as important, I think, to pick the right partner. Mm. You know, as long as it's fair value, you got to be comfortable with the people that are you're going to take the reins and and lead your employees and your legacy to that next level. Mm-hmm. And hey, for some, maybe it is about hey, I just want every last penny and I'm moving on. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But I, I think um, you can't always just let the numbers dictate as much as as the people and the plans for the future. Do you find when folks are going through that process? Uh, if they're going to fall on one side or the other, do most people fall on, I don't care, I'm taking the cash, or do most people fall on the, hey, I'm looking for a better partner, even though I'm cashing out? I think our experience has been the partner side. Okay. Uh, we certainly lost some That's deals where somebody paid more and, you know, no harm, no foul, it yeah. happens. But, it's uh, a free market. Keeps and then some healthy. people some people have picked the higher price and they get into the diligence process and maybe the deal gets retraded or maybe mm. they find out, geez, these aren't the right yeah. people after all, right? <laughs> yeah. And they, they've come back around. Sure. So um, yeah, it's just something to think about. I don't think there's a right or wrong to it. Yeah. But it, fits you. Yeah, if you're, if you're thinking about selling the business, there's a lot of decisions that go into that. Well, it's good advice. It's good insight. Steve, as you've been doing this for a handful of years, and I know that the TECM kind of evolved uh, Last handful of years, you've been focused uh, more as a SIB, SIBC? SBIC. SBIC. Yeah. Boy, a dyslexia no, strong with me today. It is um, it's tricky. What has been the most challenging for you? I know staffing up has been an issue. We talked about that earlier. But just as far as navigating the market and the work you're doing. Well, it, you know, we're in a people business. So I think, you know, both finding and retaining people is always a challenge, challenge for us. Um, but, you know, the market in general has gotten a little frothy. Mm. Um, you know, the, the competitive landscape, there are a lot of, a lot of folks have raised funds, right? And I think this gets back to where does private equity get a, get a bad name? There's just a lot of money out there. Yeah. Some folks are more qualified than others. Um, mm-hmm. it is amazing that, you know, folks without much of a track record can raise capital. Uh, there's been a, uh, one of the groups we've aligned with over, you know, the past several years as we've been doing this and, is a group uh, I'll I'll label them independent sponsors. Okay. And so private equity, uh, you know, when you're in the inside, you usually call those folks financial sponsors, right? They're they're a committed fund. They've got capital, and they're looking to invest it in privately held businesses. Those are financial sponsors. But there's another group called independent sponsors, which are deal professionals and/or operators who want to go buy a business but don't necessarily have committed capital or a lot of it. Okay. They may have their own. They may have some family and friends. And we've aligned ourselves with a lot of those folks because, um, number one, they need capital to mm-hmm. get a deal done. Mm-hmm. And number two, we're oftentimes the first institutional capital to come in. But what we like is 
it's important for them to, to have some operational experience and they're going to go in and do some of the heavy lifting from the oversight perspective okay. and we're going to provide the capital. It's a good marriage. So yeah. it's a good partnership and they don't have to go through the process of raising capital and we don't have to go through the process of having a, a traditional committed fund take our term sheet against five others and pick the cheapest one. Sure. It's a little more relationship-based investing and that's mm -hmm. that's how we like to do business. I'm going to ask you to prognosticate. I didn't we didn't talk about this ahead of the interview, but I'm just I have to ask cuz you've got a finger on the pulse in a way that I think a lot of us don't. Where do you see the market going over the next 5-10 years? I think there's concern around the economy, the political climate. I'm just yeah, curious I'm, what your I'm view is. I'm nervous. I mean, I, and, and I guess to finish that thought in the last question, I mean, so there's a lot more capital sloshing around. And what happens, that drives up valuations, oh, yeah. And yeah. which if you're a privately held business, it's, it's a good time to be selling. Good time to sell. Yeah, yeah. I'd rather be selling than buying. But, um, you know, that that's also evident of things getting a little frothy, right? You, you see it in the public markets and yep. the tech bubble in the past yep. and the financial crisis. And now you see it somewhat in the private markets. Um, I mentioned earlier that the markets are bifurcated. So when you look at companies, let's say, of 10 million of EBITDA, that, mm -hmm. that's earnings before interest, depreciation, amortization, a loose, you know, equivalent of cash flow. You know, the multiples are, you know, seven, eight times that number. Um, leverage wow. levels, that's as a multiple yeah. of EBITDA or up over four, five, even six times. Um, there's just not a, a margin of safety when you're doing deals at high valuations and high leverage. Yeah. And if the economy does, you know, turn back or... It has to correct at some point, yeah, right? Yeah, it's if going it gets, to correct. Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, we've been trying to talk ourselves into the next recession for the past two years, <laughs> yeah. and it hasn't happened. But certainly, um, you know, the challenge with tariffs, uh, and there's probably been a general slowdown in, in the global economy, sure. uh, be it China, Europe, Brexit, and then locally, I think, or you know, domestically, you know, probably certain industries... Uh, auto in particular right now or, mm -hmm. or slow. Uh, I, you know, I don't think the next recession, whether it's now or a year from now or five years from now will look like the last one, but, um, that, that does create, you know, challenges for business sure. owners. So. Sure. And Steve, as we close, I just want to ask, what are you most proud of? Well, it's been a fantastic discussion. I love hearing kind of your heart and your interest in the kinds of companies you look for, the work that you've been doing, the people you've brought on board, jobs you've created. But if you were to sit back and look at it so far, what are you most proud of at TCOM? Yeah, I'm proud of our team, our people. We have we have a great group of people who I, you know, I don't have to sit here and, and rattle a, a saber or sword and make them come to work. You know, they show up and they want to make a difference. They want to you know help their portfolio companies be better, get better, and they want to help us be better and get better. So, you know, it, it's a younger team. It has a lot of energy. You know, we, we probably lack experience in certain areas, but I think we make up for it with our enthusiasm and passion for helping small businesses. So when I step back and, you know, kind of retell our story at the beginning of this interview, you know, I'm proud that, that we make it seem like this was easy. This was not easy <laughs> and our business is not easy. Sure. But uh, to be able to overcome hurdles and challenges and, and frankly, doubters, you know, a lot of people. Um, and I think including my own wife at, at times said, hey, you're crazy. You're never going to do this because she was actually in private equity before I was, oh, she as, was. as a wow. CFO. And I think she looked at me and said, you're never going to raise a fund. Right. And even my own partners, when we, we spun out F and B, 
they said, oh, we're never going to be able to raise a full fund. And we not only did it, but more than we expected. You know, I sometimes give him a little elbow. He says, you still think we can't raise a fund? Nice. Uh, so, you know, overcoming the odds. And I think that relates well to other business owners because I know every business owner out there, regardless of size, had those kind of challenges to overcome and, and you know, and, and has been able to do that and be successful. And we respect and appreciate that. So. My guest today has been Stephen Jurjevitz. He's the managing partner and founder of Tecum Capital. Steve, thanks so much for spending the time. This has really been helpful. Great story, and, and congratulations on your success. And I feel like you really did a great job helping me, and I hope the audience understand the important role of private equity. So thanks for joining me today. Mike, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to tell our story, and we look forward to doing this for many years to come. So hopefully there's some listeners out there that we'll be able to uh, to work with someday in the future. But appreciate you uh, having us on today. Well, it's been my pleasure. Guys, if you haven't done so already, please check out Steve's company. You can check out Tecum Capital by going to their website. Just go to tecum.com. I'll put a link in the show notes but that's spelled T-E-C-U-M.com, Tecum.com. You can learn more about them. And as I mentioned earlier, they're very active on uh, LinkedIn, so you can follow the company there as well and uh, keep track of what they're up to. Also, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this podcast. I talk to great people like Steve every day, and I put out a podcast uh, once a week. I'd love for you to hear those stories. If you're interested in that type of thing, then go to anywhere that fine podcasts are provided. You can go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher Radio, and hit that subscribe button and you will get this and content just like this delivered hot and fresh to your uh, device of choice on a weekly basis. Guys, I love you all and I'll check you in the next episode.